Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court justices expressed wariness during oral arguments about opening Internet companies to lawsuits stemming from harmful user posts. The justices were hearing a case challenging Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It protects online companies from being sued over the comments, ads, pictures and videos on their platforms. The case involved a 23-year-old U.S. citizen who was one of 130 people killed in attacks by the Islamic State group in Paris in November of 2018. Her family says Google, through its algorithm-driven YouTube recommendations, aided the Islamic State in violation of the U.S. Anti-Terrorism Act. But Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that companies can't be sued if their recommendation algorithms are neutral about the kind of content they promote. If it's the same algorithm, I think you have to give us a, a clear example of it, what your point is exactly. The same algorithm to present cooking videos to people who are interested in cooking uh, and uh, ISIS videos to people who are interested in ISIS, uh, racing videos to people who are interested in racing, then I think you're going to have to explain more clearly if it's neutral in that way how your claim uh, uh, is set apart from that. Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Before we talk about the Supreme Court arguments, just explain what the case is about. This case concerns a action under the terrorist statutes directed against Google, who operates YouTube, for aiding and abetting terrorism. Uh, the argument in this case was that YouTube, by suggesting certain videos, helps radicalize people and helps, therefore helps aid ISIS into recruiting new members. And the legal issue that arises out of this challenge is whether or not a cause of action can be maintained against Google for fostering sharing of these videos, and then, if so, whether a proper cause of action has been pled. The first issue revolves around the Community and Decencies Act, Section 230, immunity for Internet computer services when they simply allow for external videos to be seen or retrieved from their site. And 230 was a key instrument in trying to develop the Internet by allowing platforms to allow others to publish videos and other works on sites without then 
letting the platform be sued in case some of those informations were, in this case, involving terrorism, but in other cases, involving defamation or involving trademark infringement and so forth. So by immunizing the platforms, it really gave rise to the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, which can basically then grab all this material or have all this material be deposited on their site and therefore available for those of us who want to search for things or want to contact friends or see, as in this case, videos. Did it strike you that there were, you know, some top concerns that the justices had about the plaintiff's lawsuit? Absolutely. This is one of these few cases where I don't think that the justices were hiding their own (laughs) beliefs. I think that their inclination to rule on behalf of the defendant was quite clear. But the issue remains about which type of decision they may want to issue. And let me break that down into two parts, because the first part was whether or not Google can be protected by Section 230 or not. And the second is whether there is a valid cause of action pled. It's pretty clear to me that the court is going to say that if you just have an algorithm recommend a video, that's not aiding and abetting. So I think that there was no inclination amongst the justices to be sympathetic with plaintiffs in that respect. And on that issue, they said, look, I mean, you can, you know, say, look at this video, or you can say, you might want to see this video, or you can say, go over there and look at a stack of books. That's simply not enough to state any kind of tortious behavior. So I think on the ultimate issue of whether a tort was committed, the court may just say, no, we don't need to reach the more difficult and tractable issue of how large is the immunity created by Section 230. But much of the argument was spent on what should we do as a court about the scope of 230 immunity, because the sort of algorithms that are used by Google and Twitter, Facebook, in terms of Facebook feeds, certainly didn't exist at the time that the Community Decency Act immunity was put into effect. So much of the discussion then revolved around how do we draw a line between when a platform says this video is available, or the platform says you might want to see this video, or the platform says you may like this video, is that enough to lose immunity? Because then it's as if the platform becomes a publisher by saying, you're going to like this video. And no one knows. Lots of hypotheticals were raised, but it's the kind of case where at the end of the day, as some of the justices said, well, if this is so difficult and this may cause such a risk to the continued development of the internet. Maybe we should let Congress make these difficult lines and we shouldn't try to ourselves. Did it seem to you as if the justices just didn't even accept the plaintiff's basic argument? Justice Alito said, I admit I'm completely confused by whatever argument you're making at the present time. Well, I mean, I think that the difficulty was that the counsel for the plaintiff backtracked from much that was in their brief and tried to make a much more narrow argument that he thought was more defensible. And he basically said that there was no duty on the platform to take down the videos and that the Google was not, couldn't be civilly liable simply for housing the videos, um, even if they were an incitement to terrorism. What he argued instead was a more narrow version is that by reorganizing the videos, by prioritizing videos through this algorithm, 
that then that crossed the line in terms of Google becoming a publisher and therefore no longer subject to the immunity created by Section 230. And that's why I think threw a lot of the justices off is the more narrow version of the argument that plaintiff was raising. The concern before the oral arguments was that this would open Google and Internet platforms up to all kinds of lawsuits. Was that addressed in the oral arguments? Absolutely. I mean, a number of briefs were filed that raised a parade of horribles um, that uh, Google and Facebook will be subject to defamation cases, subject to privacy cases, trademark cases, um, if Section 230 immunity was tampered with. And I think the reason is that it's so difficult to figure out what it is, where the line is between a platform simply saying, come look at the videos here. That's what people do to sell things. They publicize them. And when is it okay just to publicize and say, you may be interested in this article or this video, as opposed to when you actually become in cahoots with the uh, video because you prioritize it in some ways. And the narrow argument that the plaintiff gave was by giving a little thumbnail that uh, YouTube creates, in other words, just a little brief sort of taste of what the video is, that that really crossed the line. And then YouTube became just as if it was creating something, it was creating like a mini advertisement. And that little mini advertisement was enough to give rise to liability and to avoid immunity. And the United States is the meekest was sympathetic to that view. The United States clearly said there's not enough for aiding and abetting liability here. But the United States says, you know, look, once you create any kind of semi-advertising platform, be it through a, you should look at this first, come here and look at this new video, you're responsible for that, that product, for that kind of statement yourself. And then you're no longer immune for at least that kind of advertising or promotions, prioritization or organization, even if you still remain immune from liability for the, for the video itself. Do you think that the justices can come to a decision here without specifically ruling on Section 230? So the, the court has a couple of different options in front of it. First of all, I could just say whatever is going on in this case, there is no aiding and abetting liability here. So we reserve the right to question the, the scope of 230 immunity for a different day. That's one option. Another option is they can say this is a difficult line drawing issue about when does a platform liability uh, become a publisher through its organizational and prioritization of other work. And they can try to find a line. The line, not surprisingly drawn by Google, was that if the harm comes from the prioritization or the harm comes from the publicizing, then there should be no immunity. But of course, that's a convenient test for Google because then Google wins in almost every case. Not every case, but almost every case. The other third tack the court could just take was this is a new issue that Congress has not fully thought through when it passed the Communications Decency Act. It's very difficult. We have a new age of AI and other kinds of algorithms, and we're going to let Congress take the lead if it wants to change the immunity for platforms such as 
Twitter, and Google. Did anyone mention the original authors of Section 230, Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden and former California Republican Representative Chris Cox explained their thinking behind the legislation in a brief to the court, and they said that algorithmic recommendations are direct descendants of the early content curation efforts that Congress had in mind when enacting Section 230. Does that have any relevance at all? Was that mentioned at all? So the names of the, of the sponsors of the Community Decency Act uh, were not mentioned in, in to my recall, uh, but there was some discussion of that kind of legislative history that the drafters of the bill were aware of algorithmic-type uses. Now, they didn't dominate at the time, uh, but they were around in their infancy. And so the question is, then, if the drafters were aware of the potential for algorithms, were they trying to protect those as well by the use of language in the immunity section? And it was interesting because, you know, the, the immunity section can be interpreted different ways. It can be interpreted through the lens of common law defamation actions. It can be interpreted through the brief language that's in the immunity section as well. And so there was some effort not only looking at legislative history, but looking at the plain language as well as common law antecedents of this immunity section. But I think at the end of the day, those arguments are not going to win out. I think the question is really that the court was stumbling on is, okay, theoretically, there are some bad algorithms out there. Everybody agreed that if an algorithm tended to differentiate on the basis of race, for instance, that then the platforms would not escape liability. Because then the harm would be caused by the algorithm itself. But at what point would a neutral algorithm, everybody agreed that this algorithm that was challenged was neutral in the sense that it treated people liking pet cats and terrorist videos the same in terms of how the algorithm works, that at what point would sort of a neutral algorithm be subject to suit was the question, and how do you draw the line? And that was daunting, I think, at oral argument, both to the attorneys representing the parties as well as to the justices. And so, again, I think the three choices are uh, the court may just punt and say, we'll await Congress. They can try to draft some kind of line itself, which did not come clearly through at the oral argument. Or they can just avoid the whole question by saying, whatever this is, there's no aiding and abetting going on here simply by use of an algorithm so we don't have to talk about or reach the scope of immunity under the Community Decency Act. Was it surprising Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked the plaintiff's attorney to confirm that the legal theory he was advancing would not protect individual Internet users retweeting, sharing, or liking other people's content? And he said that it would cover people retweeting or liking. Justice Barrett asked about whether retweeting could land someone in jeopardy um, for retweeting a defamatory statement. And other justices chimed in, and that's a difficulty because in terms of if you republish a defamatory statement in the newspaper, the newspaper can also be sued for defamation. So the counsel had to wrestle with that because there is a possibility that if the plaintiff's theory of the case were accepted that those who retweeted thoughtlessly might be subject to uh, lawsuits as well. But everybody hastened to add that's not directly at stake in this particular case because this case 
had to do with not republishing, but rather platform organizing or platform prioritization of videos for others to watch. The court didn't have to take this case because there wasn't a split in the circuits. Why do you think they took this case and the Twitter case? So I've wondered why the court accepted this case, and I haven't come up with a a very convincing response (laughs) in my own mind with this caveat. There is such a controversy brewing on the political parties about big tech, and if big tech is good or bad for the country. And 230 immunity was one of the major arguments that has been brooded back and forth by the political parties as to whether or not it's a good or bad thing and whether or not it's letting big tech get away with too much. So this may have been a first effort for the court in its own mind to be responsible and try to wrestle with 230 in order to sort of depoliticize to some extent the role of big tech in our country. I don't know if my theory has any kind of legs, but if so, uh, I think that big tech is going to look pretty good after this case is over. I know that Justice Amy Coney Barrett did talk about the case against Twitter. So if you lose tomorrow, do we even have to reach the Section 230 question here? How much did the case against Twitter come up? The case against Twitter came up a lot because the case against Twitter revolves around the question of the validity of the aiding and abetting argument. Um, And the court seemed to overwhelmingly uh, oppose the notion that Twitter or any other platform can aid and abet merely by offering someone to view a incendiary, in this case, an incendiary video. In another case, it could be some kind of defamatory tweet or something else along those lines, that aiding and abetting has to be much more according to the court. So I'm not sure what there's going to be for argument uh, for two hours tomorrow, because it looks like most of that argument already took place here. But, you know, maybe the court will have some twists and turns to to cover, to make up for something that they regret not covering. From what you're saying and from what the justices said, it's it sort of seems like a very logical conclusion that, you know, just by having these algorithms, you're not aiding and abetting terrorism. It does. On the other hand, but for YouTube, but for Facebook, terrorists might not be able to operate so freely. And more people now see pro-ISIS videos than ever could have before because of internet platforms like YouTube and Facebook. And that's, that's the danger here. I mean, it is true that in terms of you just looked at common sense responsibility for aiding terrorism, platforms do it. And there's no question about it. But whether there's criminal liability or even whether there's civil liability under the aid to terrorist statutes, I think that's a that's a more difficult question. Thanks for being on the show, Hal. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. President Biden surpassed 100 judicial confirmations last week, including Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. But most of his circuit and district court appointments have been in blue states or those represented by Senate Democrats who narrowly control the chamber. Finding common ground with Republicans will be vital to the Biden administration since 38 of the 56 trial court vacancies without a pending nominee are in red states. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. I'd like you first to explain the process is different for nominees for district court as opposed to circuit court. So explain the difference. Right. So district courts still need support from both of their home state senators through a process known as the blue slip. It's where senators send in a a physical slip of paper um, to to signify that they agree with a nominee. That was abandoned for, for appellate nominees under Trump. And, and Democrats have, have held that same policy under Biden, where appellate nominees don't need home state senators' support, but district nominees still do. There are 56 trial court vacancies that don't have a nominee even suggested. Right. There are, there are quite a few district court vacancies now. Um, Biden has, has prioritized uh, circuit vacancies and really nominated a lot of folks for the open seats. So now there are quite a few district vacancies, and the majority of those are in states with a Republican senator. Because home state support is is so needed on those, it'll be interesting to see how the White House goes about negotiations with senators in those states and what those nominees end up looking like. There are still a lot of vacancies in blue states. Why aren't they sort of up to date? Well, there's, you know, there's there's still a few nominees in, or vacancies, excuse me, in, in blue states. There's quite a few nominees pending. So after the beginning of the new Congress, the White House renominated um, a whole batch of nominees that were pending in the last Congress. Any nominee who wasn't confirmed at the end of the last Congress, just as a kind of a matter of, of practice, needs to be renominated at the beginning of a new Congress. And all of those nominees are either on the floor or had their hearings. So 
the Senate still needs to get through those. They still have work to do. And a lot of those are nominees in, in blue states as well. But there are a handful of seats that are still open. So, um, you know, there there's only a finite number of days that, um, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee can, can have hearings and, you know, then have floor votes on, on nominees. So, you know, last Congress, I, I think the White House obviously prioritized nominees, but they still left it a few a uh, handful of seats in blue states just because of kind of the constraints of that process and, and the limited number of, of days on the calendar to, to actually get nominees through. In a red state, is it normally, if there is, you know, a, a usual process, does the Biden administration suggest a nominee or does the home state senator suggest a nominee? So I spoke to um, Paige Herwig, a, a senior White House counsel who, who works on judicial nominations, and she said the administration is, is looking for people in these conversations that make sense for a Democratic president to nominate, but who will get the necessary backing from home state senators. And, you know, they believe that, that there are plenty of candidates out there who will fit that bill. Those conversations can look anything like the White House bringing names, the, the home state senators bringing names. I, I think it really... Um, differs from state to state, uh, depending on, you know, what the area looks like, too, for those conversations. Now, Biden has had success in finding mutually agreeable nominees in red states of Iowa, Idaho, and Indiana. Is there a reason why those states have been, you know, easier to find nominees for? Is it the senators there? Well, I mean, I think it could be it could be the senators. Um, you know, I spoke to Senator Mike Braun, um, who is a Republican in Indiana, and talked to him a little bit about how how this nomination in, in his state came to be. And and he said it was an easy checkoff for him. Um, the nomination of of Matthew Brookman, who's currently a magistrate judge to a district court in his state. Not every nominee is going to be as easy of a of a checkoff, depending on their background. So you know, it'll probably depend on on what nominees or what candidates arrive in those conversations. It can also depend on, you know, who the lawmakers are and and what the area looks like. Uh, so some states might be easier than others to have these kinds of conversations with. And Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas complained at a Judiciary Committee meeting that the White House hadn't reached out to him even, and there are a lot of vacancies in his state. So John Cornyn um, of Texas represents a state with six vacancies, which is the, the second most vacancies of, of any of the states out there that don't uh, of these seats that don't have pending nominees in district courts. And he um, was not pleased with with how the White House had been communicating on this. He felt that um, he had communicated with the White House and the White House hadn't gotten back to him quickly enough on their end. And um, you know that could that could mean you know that. If there's six seats in the state, that that's that's not great <laughs> for uh, those those conversations. I mean, it could potentially leave six seats on the table, but I guess we'll see how that that shakes out. Um, I I think he definitely expressed disappointment, and um, you know, Lindsey Graham, who is now the ranking member, the ranking Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee, kind of echoed his his concerns at a recent hearing as, as well, and said, you know, there has to be a willingness to consult, but it's got to be a two way street, and of course. All of these conversations are coming as there's a lot of progressive pressure to eliminate the blue slip entirely at the district court level. So I think that definitely is context for all of these negotiations right now, is that um, there's quite a lot of pressure. It's 
um, it's increased, I think, in this new Congress to just get a, get rid of the blue slips so Biden could move nominees forward in district courts without having to negotiate with Republican senators. I think progressives fear that, that this will take a long time and, you know, the nominees might end up being a, a more of a compromise pick between Republicans and, and the White House. But the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Dick Durbin, to me, it seems like he's been reluctant to make any changes, even with, you know, having more nominees at each hearing. Right. So Senator Durbin has, has really maintained the same practices here that Republicans had during the Trump administration. Um, and and that means keeping the blue slip for district courts in place. He, he said that you know, he's reserved the right to potentially move forward with the nominee in the future if uh, he he feels that a Republican senator or, or a senator is objecting to a nominee outside of their merits. So because of race, sexual orientation, gender. When I spoke to him about this, he he said in, in that kind of a case, he, he'd know it when when he sees it. So we really haven't come across a situation like that yet. Um, there was a nominee in the last Congress who didn't have both of his home state senators return blue slips on his nomination, William Pocon in, in Wisconsin. His nomination, he was not renominated this Congress by the White House. But, you know, so he, we've already seen one nominee who uh, the blue slip rule prevented their nomination from moving forward and kind of it, it ended up ending their nomination. So, um, you know, this Congress, I think, will be even more of a test with the number, the volume of vacancies in states with Republican senators. And a nominee in Kentucky also fell through. Right. Chad Meredith's nomination. Um, well, he, he wasn't really a nominee yet. He was a candidate. Um, I should be clear about that. But this was a nominee that, you know, Senator Rand Paul didn't feel like he was consulted enough uh, on this uh, by, by Senator McConnell. Um, it was an apparent kind of agreement or nominees at the White House and, and McConnell um, had, had talked about. But Rand Paul was actually, um, you know, what ended up preventing the nomination from moving forward because he didn't feel like he was part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the nomination was scrapped. And that nomination um, or candidacy angered progressives um, because Ted Meredith had defended um, abortion restrictions and progressives were, were really not pleased with the idea that the White House was considering uh, a nominee like that, especially, you know, so close to the Dobbs decision. The last Senate, a lot of times the committee was deadlocked 10 to 10 on nominations. So there was a, you know, a process to go forward. Is it easier now with the Democrats gaining that seat? Yes. Democrats are going to have a, a much easier time, committee Democrats, getting these nominees um, out of, of committee into the floor. As you mentioned, there were there were deadlocks on nominees last Congress. There were actually a couple at the banning of, of this Congress um, because the committee didn't have its new membership yet. So those were a little unexpected. Um, but now that it has this you know additional vote with, with Senator Peter Welsh, they are, are able to actually get some of these nominees out of committee and have been able to get some of these nominees out of committee who did deadlock last Congress. So those nominations are, are finally moving forward. Um, one of those nominees is, is Dale Ho, who's nominated to the Southern District of New York. He's an ACLU voting rights attorney, and his nomination had deadlocked, but now he, he is now on the floor. So um, it's, it's already paying dividends. So now I, I wanted to talk about this nominee 
from New Hampshire that both progressives and Republicans were pushing back on. Right. So one of Biden's nominees to um, the First Circuit, Michael Delaney, um, he had his confirmation hearing last week and, and got some some pushback from um, progressives, um, you know, sexual violence awareness groups and Republicans for his involvement in um, litigation with a, a student who was a victim of sexual harassment. He he was the lawyer for uh, the school in, in this litigation. And um, the critics have really focused on a, a motion um, that Delaney filed during proceedings um, for the then teenage victim to shed her anonymity and, um, you know, come forward with her name on the record. Yeah, and so the victim wrote to the committee urging the senators to vote no, and um, the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence expressed concerns. So where does that nomination stand? So, you know, I spoke to some Democrats on the committee about this before they, they got out of town, and um, they, they're they reviewing his record. Uh, I, I That's really the, the most um, common answer that I heard um, was that they were reviewing his his background, but he still has support from the White House. Um, he still has support from at least one of his home state senators. Um, you know, and when I spoke to Durbin about this, um, you know, Jared Durbin mentioned that uh, he he kind of had a difficult situation explaining this, and um, he he pointed to the amount of support Delaney had and and said he he hoped that his fate wouldn't be decided by this controversial issue. This is so interesting, too, because the last time there was a nominee that progressives were really opposing, uh, Republicans supported that nominee, like, tenfold. It was unanimous out of committee. I think they might have even voice voted her on the floor. So this is kind of the first time you see... Republicans and progressives on the same side, at least that I can think of. Thanks so much, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford... We don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.